Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by the Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia on the Holy Spirit. This December 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. The Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia are based in Nashville in the United States and have been operating a mission in Sydney, Australia since 2007. I was teaching about the Trinity to sixth graders, year six, okay? And I said, you know, so many people um, can relate to the Father because maybe, especially if they had a strong family relationship with them, maybe they, they could relate to that concept of Father. Many, many more people can relate to Jesus because he became one of us. He walked among us. He can read the beautiful gospel accounts of his life and his teachings. And I said, you know, the Holy Spirit, I think sometimes, it can be a bit challenging to relate to the Holy Spirit, especially if we think the Holy Spirit's a bird. Anyway, I think that like, we love birds. Every time we go home, we think about the bird. You know, God is a bird, okay? Um, the, the, the dove is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. But I said, what is it about the Holy Spirit? And the Holy Spirit, um, and I don't want to take away parts of the others, just talk, but is the love between the Father and the Son. And in the family, we see such a beautiful model of how the love between two persons can be so strong that it actually is a third person. And so in the human family, we see this beautiful model of the Trinity. And we see that, that love that is the third person in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this person is not only God, but is God who comes to dwell within us and work within us. And if we can open ourselves to the gift and the presence of the Holy Spirit, then the Holy Spirit is poured out into our hearts poured into our lives, and can work wonders within us. Um, and we really wanted to center our talk in a way that would have three natural parts. But actually, the first one to come up with her talk was Sister Anna. And she said, I really want to talk about the Holy Spirit and hope. And so we said, okay, if she wants to talk about hope, then the two logical other divisions of this talk are faith and love. Okay? And so Sister Mary Rachel and I actually drew names, I mean, drew out of a hat to see who would give faith and who would give love. Um, and I got faith. Okay? So I'm going to share with you a few reflections about how the Holy Spirit works in our lives through faith. Um, now, the first point I just want to sh- kind of introduce this with is that the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, are called theological because of the relation to God. And the Catechism in paragraph 1812 says, it's because God is their origin, their motive, and their object. That God is the origin. You know, sometimes we might think, I'm really struggling to believe. I'm really struggling to trust. And I'm not really going out of myself to love. But if God is the origin, we have to rely on him, and we have to ask him and seek from him what he wants to do in our lives and in our hearts. That God is the motive, the Catechism says. He is the reason why we believe, the reason why we hope, the reason why we love. And he is the object. Faith is not just trusting somebody. Faith is not, uh, hope is not just, you know, wishing for something to happen. Love is not just an emotional high we get when a great other person walks into the room. God is the ultimate object of faith, hope, and love. And so, the Holy, the Holy Spirit's kind of action in introducing these virtues into our lives, it says that the theological virtues in the Catechism, paragraph 1813, the virtues are the pledge of the presence and action of the Holy Spirit in the faculties of the human being. The pledge of the presence 
an action of the Holy Spirit in the faculties of the human being. So if the Holy Spirit is in me, living and dwelling in me and acting in me, then the virtues are what you will see in my life. So when the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us, and we know by our baptism we receive a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when we're confirmed it's extra deepen. And really, I think, in every sacrament, in every opportunity of prayer, we need to consciously call upon the Holy Spirit. You know, how many times have we made the sign of the cross, which is there to remind us of our baptism, there to remind us of who we're even connecting with in prayer. And, you know, one Lent, you know, you think of all these practices to come up for Lent, and I don't know if you've ever tried to challenge yourself to do something really difficult for Lent, you know, give up every dessert, you know, nothing you like will pass through your lips the entire season. <laughs> well, I remember one time, I was with a group of sisters in the Novitiate in the first years of religious life, and I remember saying, what can we do this this Lent to really change our lives with prayer? It's not just about giving something up. Like, it's not just this, like, triathlon kind of a concept. It's what can really lead me closer to God. And we came up with this idea collectively, praying the sign of the cross and meaning it. Because we hadn't really thought about how many times a day we made the sign of the cross. We make it a lot in sisters. Probably even more than you do. <laughs> and it can become just this, like any of our prayers, it can become very routine. And he said, if we were to consciously make the sign of the cross, thinking about the Blessed Trinity, thinking about the action of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our lives, how would that open us up to prayer in general? If we consciously pray for ourselves in the presence of the Trinity, how would our whole prayer life change? And I found personally, it did change the rest of my prayer life to take that one act and really concentrate on it and to really trust that when I was calling upon God, He was really present with me and in me. And that that became a sign of faith. Now, you probably all at some point in your life learned the definition for faith. Um, and faith is essentially belief. But when we, when we think of what is faith as a theological version, the Catechism breaks it into three parts. That faith is Belief in God, belief in all that he says and reveals to us, and belief in all that the Holy Church proposes for our belief. Now, that is really beautiful to think. It's not only believing in God, believing what he reveals, but also believing everything he reveals to us specifically through the teachings of the Church. Now, what I love about this, this paragraph where they include this, though, is it doesn't just say belief, point one, belief, point two, belief, point three. It says why. Because E capital H, so God here, is truth capital T itself. It's not just believing even I'm going to say I believe, believing because I know He is truth itself. I think that one of the key aspects of understanding the virtue of faith is understanding that. If we're going to come to a really deep place in our faith, and a really committed place in our faith, we have to believe in someone and not just something. It's true that our faith has many aspects or many dimensions of that are part of it, but it is essentially believing in someone. Now, I've taught for a number of years, and my students will come to me and they'll say, you know, oh, yeah, my faith is important to me, and but I don't believe taking 
or I will be teaching on. And especially because I taught moral theology for a number of years. Because some of the moral teachings of the church they find a bit difficult to embrace and live out as what? Okay. And so they might say, Oh, you know, I believe in God and I you know believe it's important for the church, but you know, I have my own thoughts about certain teachings or certain moral practices. And without disrespecting the fact that they're in a genuine state of seeking to understand more deeply why those things are true, I found myself coming back to a few questions like, do you believe in God? And they always said yes. And for my students, I would say, well, do you believe that the Gospels really are the revealed word of God? And usually they said yes. And I would then say, well, when the Gospels speak of the family of the church, Jesus Christ, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. Jesus breathing forth on his apostles, the gift of the Holy Spirit, receive the power of the Holy Spirit, go forth, baptize all the nations in my name, you know, be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Do you believe he really meant it? And they always say yes. And if, if the Holy Spirit is really in the church, how could the church be wrong? And that doesn't negate the search or the quest for a deepening in a person's faith. But uh, when I was in high school, one of the sisters who taught me from our community said to me, if you find yourself questioning or rejecting a teaching of the church, it's not as if you can ignore your own way of thinking. You have to, you have to walk through what you're really thinking. But do ask yourself, is it more likely that the church with 2,000 years of wisdom and the guidance of the Holy Spirit is right? Or is it more likely that I'm right. <laughs> well, that's a kind of obvious question. Um, um, obviously, the church of 2,000 years of wisdom and the grand might have a little bit of an edge on me at the time of my 18 years of great wisdom and experience. But I, I mean, I've you know, God is really working in this church. And so we must believe in someone in order to believe something. Now, for those of us who are in some way sharing with other people the truth of the faith that comes to the church, the teachers, the parents, people involved in ministry, we should realize the great importance of honesty in the way that we present the faith, and in being willing to admit, if we don't know the answer to a question, that we need to go and look at it more deeply ourselves. Because they don't need to believe in us before they can accept the word that we have. And we've all experienced that. People trust us, and then they trust what we say. So the same, same thing happens in our relationship with God. If we come to a point where we really are just believing in God, then what he reveals to us cannot be stress. I mean, it's got to be the truth if God is the one revealing it to us. Um, and really, if we think about who is worthy of our belief, we believe many people. You know, there are many parts of the world I've never seen. But when somebody says, well, I've been to this place, and I'm the scribe of people, somebody tells me before I ever came here, that there were these funny animals with long tails that hop all over the place in Australia, I believe them, even though I had never seen one myself. <laughs> now I have seen them. <laughs> You know, I believe because people tell me, and they're like, well, I've seen them, you know? And we have many witnesses who saw Jesus Christ. We have many people who've experienced the power of God at work in their own lives and their own souls. And yet, we have these great temptations sometimes to not believe. Well, we accept the testimony of many people. And who is more worthy of us accepting the testimony they give than God himself? He's the only one that's 100% reliable in the truth that he reveals. So when we're struggling with our faith, I think we always have to go back to, in whom am I believing? In whom am I placing my trust? 
on one level it seems if that if what I'm saying is true, that if faith is from God and it leads us to him, that it should be easy to believe. And yet we've all experienced struggles. We've all experienced probably times when it was not so easy to believe. Because God reveals himself to us, but faith is still a free response. It still demands something on our part. St. Anselm was famous for saying, faith seeks understanding. Now that is true. We want to understand. And the reason God gave us the ability to think through what we, what we discover is a God-given gift. And our world today, I think especially in the realm of science, tries to create this false dichotomy between faith and reason. To say that if you're thinking hard about things, you're going to come to a different conclusion than if you believe. But God is the author of all reality and all truth. So if I'm pursuing a search or quest for knowledge, even in the natural realm, if I'm doing it honestly and by good scientific procedure, I will arrive at truth that nourish and support my faith. It don't contradict my faith. God doesn't expect us to turn off our minds. Our minds are a gift of God. He gave us great intelligence. So when faith seeks understanding, that's not contrary to the faith. However, our faith will carry us beyond what we can understand on the natural level. We can understand many things on the natural level, but on the natural level, we cannot penetrate to the very depths of the mystery of God. I gave you that analogy of the family being like the love of the Trinity. But ultimately, can I put under a microscope the truth of the Trinity? No. Can I give you quantitative evidence that, that Jesus is the Son of God? No. Um, St. Paul said, we walk by faith, not by sight. So even though we want and we seek tangible signs of the realities around us, and that's not a bad thing, faith is always going to take us further. And he said also, we see dimly now as in a mirror, but then, meaning in the kingdom of heaven, we shall see face to face. There are, there are aspects of the mystery of God that in this life we have to accept on faith, even if we can't understand the depths and the fullness of them. Now, throughout salvation history, there are many people of great faith who encountered enormous struggles or trials in their faith. So I, w I don't want to ever diminish the struggle to believe. Because we will probably come to points where we're not sure what we believe, where God seems distant, or some of his teachings seem a bit obscure to us. And even in the scriptures themselves, we see wonderful examples of people who experienced great trials of faith and yet persevered in their faith. If we think about Abraham, you know, even though he lived thousands of years ago, Abraham was asked some rather challenging leaps of faith by God. I mean, we know that early in his life he was asked to leave his country, leave everything that he knew well, and to set out for this promised land that didn't seem very promising, okay? But he did it. God asked it, and he did it. And then he was given this promise, you will be the father of many nations. Now, he was given this promise at a time when he was already quite elderly, and his wife was beyond childbearing years, and he was going to be the father of many nations. But Abraham didn't say, well, wait a minute, God. My, my wife and I are too old. You let us into this place. We don't even know where we're going. It wouldn't be very wise to set up a family here. We don't have a college plan set up, you know. And, you know. I mean, he didn't do that. He trusted. He believed. And the reward of his faith was the beautiful gift of his son Isaac. And then I think the greatest of all challenges that must have come to Abraham, if you can imagine, believing in this marvelous promise that he the father of many nations, you find this beautiful son, and God says, okay, now I want you to take up that son, 
and then once you decide to fight them, once you be done. Now, if you think you've ever had a trial of faith, if you can imagine what Abraham went through when God said to him, I want you to take your son and I want you to kill him. I cannot even imagine what Abraham went through in that time between when God revealed that to him and the time that God stopped his hand. I cannot imagine a deeper trial of faith. But Abraham took it then, and he went up the hill, put him up on the altar, raised the knife, and God sent his angel to spare Isaac. Abraham must have felt completely abandoned by God. But he believed, and he received his son back. Our Blessed Mother, whose Immaculate Conception we celebrate already, and we will continue to celebrate tomorrow, she was vowed to virginity, a bit like Abraham. seemed like a child was not on her horizon. But when God chose her to be the mother of his son, she believed. And her belief made her the mother of the Son of God. And I can only imagine what darkness Mary must have experienced when she also walked up a hill with her son for him to be killed. Her only son. She stood there at the foot of the cross and she even heard her son, whom she knew was the Son of God, Say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I think Mary suffered a great crisis of faith. And yet she believed. And because she had faith, she also received her son back. The trials of our faith are very real. One of the aspects we wanted to incorporate into this talk was just a little glimpse of the patron saints of this world you say. One of all the patron saints of world you say is Blessed Mary MacKillop, a saint I have come to love very much in my time in Australia. She also must have suffered an incredible trial of faith because she trusted very much in God and she trusted especially in the church and I would guess that one of the deepest challenges to her faith was when the church that she knew spoke for God, by its authority, she was excommunicated and cut off. I can't imagine what it must have been like for a woman who dedicated her whole life to God through the church to be cast out of that church. But she remained in faith. She did not turn away from God and she did not turn away from the church. And she was restored to the church. And not only restored to the church, but raised to the authors of the saints. Blessed Teresa of Calcutta, Mother Teresa, was an, is another of the World Youth Day patrons. And very recently, many writings have come out about the great tr crisis in faith that she experienced in her life. People have been very shocked, although I have to admit to you that I was not shocked to discover some, I've heard, I've heard different, different numbers. I've heard 20, 30, 40, and 50. Somewhere in the, in the zeros, um, years of spiritual darkness. Apparently, after her death, sometime after, her spiritual director has revealed some of what he knew from working with her. And 
I believe it was somewhere between 30 and 50 years, she struggled with spiritual darkness, with not having the sense that God was really present to her in her emotions. She knew God was with her. And she did not lose faith, but she experienced an incredible trial of her faith. Now, many people find that astonishing. They say, you know, here was this woman, totally dedicated to God, beautifully serving him day in and day out. She was doubting God? I don't know if that would be really the right word for what Mother Teresa went through. But she certainly was lacking the presence, the felt presence of God in her life. And the saints, especially many of the Carmelite mystics, like John of the Cross, say that this is actually a sign of God's great favor. That when we go through a time of darkness, where it feels like God is not present to us, if we remain true to God, stay in our faith, God is not going to abandon us. And that that is a purification of our souls. That instead of loving the consolations of God, we come to love the God of consolations. St. Catherine of Siena, a great Dominican saint, had revelations from Jesus. And she wrote um, what she experienced in this conversation with God down in a book called The The Dialogue. And in the dialogue, God said to her, Catherine, if I could send nothing but good things and blessings into the lives of my children... And they would keep their hearts pure and focus on me. I would always fill your life with blessings. But he said, sometimes my children, in receiving my gifts, love the gift so much they forget the giver. And so I let them experience the loss of the gift that their hearts might return to the giver. It's a beautiful way of recognizing what God might be doing in our darkness, in our pain, in our trials. Returning our hearts to the giver. A third World Youth Day patron is one that I was not familiar with until working at World Youth Day, Blessed Peter Tarot. He was a catechist who spread his faith from the time he was 18 years old until he was 30. After 12 years of serving as a catechist, the Japanese came to Papua New Guinea, which is where he is from, and, and under their occupation, all formal missionaries of the faith were imprisoned in concentration camps. And one of the ways the Japanese, who at that time were taking over, were trying to break down the church, was by, te- by rejecting the church's teachings about marriage and saying that polygamy was a good thing, having multiple spouses. So Peter not only continued to teach his faith, but he openly rejected the, the teachings on polygamy. And even when his own brother took multiple wives, he spoke openly against this practice, defending the church's faith and its teachings. Peter himself was arrested, and he was killed by lethal injection. He had to suffer a great deal for his faith, but he never lost hope in God. How do we who also face struggles and temptations to reject our faith open ourselves to this virtue? St. Thomas Aquinas says, and is quoted in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, believing is an act of the intellect, assenting to the divine truth by command of the will, Moved by God through grace. Repeat that. Believing is an act of the intellect. So there is an intellectual ascent we make. We learn our faith. Our reason is at work. We understand what it is and we seek to understand more deeply that we believe. Assenting to the divine truth by command of the will. It's not just knowing. It's, it's commanding of my will that I choose to believe. I choose to seek to know my faith more deeply. 
And what strengthens me in this choice, moved by God through grace, and that is where the role of the Holy Spirit is particularly key, that the Holy Spirit moves in me to give me the light to know what is genuinely true in my mind and the strength to embrace with my will that truth. This is precisely the work of the Holy Spirit. In our intelligence, we feed our intellect with God's word. So how are we going to deepen in faith just in our day-to-day lives? Read the word of God. Do good spiritual reading. You know, I ride a train in the morning, and the things people fill their minds with, I'm like, wow, no wonder we're having crises of faith, you know? I mean, even people who are very much trying to live good Christian or Catholic lives, they read this junk, and I'm like, you know, there are great, wonderful books, great, wonderful resources to read that can strengthen and deepen us in our faith, and we should do that. We should read those things. Um, Because the Holy Spirit works in us through the gifts of knowledge, counsel, understanding, wisdom. And Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will lead you to all truth. We listen to the preaching and teaching of the church. We seek good resources for strengthening our faith. In our wills, we choose to believe. We make acts of faith. I think we should never underestimate the power of very short, simple prayers. One of my very favorite ways to pray for an increase in faith is to use the line in the scriptures, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Because I know I have to grow on my faith. You know, I just talk in front of a child. Of course Jesus is in the blessed power. I believe that. But do I believe it with everything in me? Not yet. Because I think if I believe it with everything in me, nothing would distract me from doing that. If I knew with everything in me that that's Jesus, I don't think I'd ever be sad in this moment. I don't think I'd ever be distracted from him. Because I do have faith, thanks be to him for giving it to me, but I can still grow. And so can all of us. We can learn and deepen and grow in our faith. So make act, conscious acts of faith. Lord, I believe you are here. Teach me to know you better. Lord, I believe you're in the people around me. Show me more deeply how you're present in the people I love, in the people I live with, in the people I work with every day. That's how our will gets engaged in the act of faith. And the Holy Spirit gives the gift of fortitude to our wills to strengthen us to live the truths that we know by faith. Grace is a gift of God, given by the Holy Spirit. So if we ask God to increase our faith, we will receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and we can grow in our faith. When the Catechism is concluding the section on faith in the personal sense, before it moves into faith in the collective sense, as the Church's belief, it concludes with this beautiful quote from the letter to the Hebrews. Um, And I'll leave you with this, and then give us just a chance to share with you more about the virtues of hope and charity. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the saints, and those striving to be saints, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. When you have times of struggle in your belief, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Tell Jesus with all honesty the challenges you are experiencing. And I know he will send out his Holy Spirit to you to strengthen you and deepen your faith, deepen your belief. And it is impossible to talk about faith without continuing to think about how then do we move from what we believe to how we hope and ultimately it's the goal of love. You'll find that all of our styles are quite individual, 
Um, and one of my styles is that I hate not knowing where I am. So I wanted just to kind of pull back out and remind you of the structure of where we are and where we're going. And um, <clears throat> since we're also all teachers, um, hopelessly teachers, hope, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd like to keep things on my fingers. So just to remind you, there are three sisters, there are three virtues, and each of us are talking about three patrons, and I think all three of us have three parts to our little talk. So just in case you're getting lost, you can just start holding up your fingers, and that way I'll know that you're drifting a little bit, right? <laughs> start doing like this. Um, and of course, that three is in love for the Trinity and for our beloved Thomas Aquinas, who was very fond of giving three objections and then three responses. So... Um, Onto that. I also wanted to pull back out a little bit and say, um, to justify why I was the one that um, is now responsible for you hearing about faith and now hope. Um, we've <laughs> and eventually love. Um, because we worked for World Youth Day, we've um, kind of been a sounding board for a lot of people. Um, our responses fall between two extremes, and the two extremes are as follows. Some people come up and say, World Youth Day! It's going to be the salvation of Australia. <laughs> Everyone will go back to church. <laughs> the priests and religious will all put back on their religious attire. The music will be phenomenal. The paint will be shining new. Everything, you know, everything will be phenomenal. And it happened in other countries, and it's going to happen in Australia just by having World Youth Day come. Okay, that's an extreme, and obviously a little character. The other response we've had is saying, it's nothing but a concert. It's a concert and it's going to go really well on a very practical scale, but it's not going to have any effect. It'll come and it'll go and that'll be it. Right? Um, and obviously it's kind of hard to respond to those, both of those statements. And, you know, I hear you laughing. Have you heard people say something of this sort? Okay. Um, obviously... Virtues, I mean, between extremes. Um, hopefully, World Youth Day's true effect will not be either of those. There's a risk that we could let it become one of those. Well, we can't really risk to let it fill the churches, but we're aiming for something that is not just a me between those extremes, but that goes on a different level. The error in both those examples, or both those responses, is that it looks only on a natural level which is why we have chosen to talk specifically about the theological virtues, to look beyond the natural level and say, what needs to happen in the hearts of the people? What is it that the Holy Spirit will need to pour out on Australia for there to be a real difference that might not be visible at first? Right? Um, so don't go knocking on doors the day after World Youth Day ends and say, are you going back to church? Right? <laughs> That'll be a sign of it. Okay, uh, moving on to hope. <clears throat> and I have my little notes here, and they say, poor hope, because hope is often the theological virtue that is forgotten. Um, if hope didn't show up, we'd be in trouble. Um, but prior to um, our beloved Holy Father, Benedict XVI's um, recent encyclical on hope, you could say that there's, there isn't a lot written on hope relative to what's written on faith and love. Right? You have people that, that you know, campaign for love, and you have people that usually cry out about their experience of lack of faith. But very few people will say, I don't have hope. You know, someone that's willing to say that has actually already embarked upon a journey that's hard to turn back from. 
Um, I think there are a few reasons why hope is hard to pin down. Um, when we look at faith, we say faith is an act of the intellect. Okay, sorry, the teacher's coming at me, right? It's an act of the intellect, and it perfects the intellect. Love is an act of the. Uh oh. It's an act of the the will. Yeah. Okay. It's an act of the will. What's hope? The fruit? <laughs> Somewhere in the middle. Okay. It's tough because hope kind of sits between faith and love, right? I don't want to say it's just the glue that's between them, but the answer, by the way, is it does perfect the will. Of course, all three theological virtues affect both the intellect and the will, and of course, then by derivation our passions, too. Um, but I think that's, that's one reason why we don't really know quite what to say about hope. It's also one of the reasons why we so easily call things that are not hope, hope. And we cheat ourselves when we do that. Um, so just in the, the little bit that I do want to say about hope, which we hope to receive from the Holy Spirit, keep using that in, in our terms, um, I want to approach it in a kind of an organic way. What I mean by an organic way is to say, to describe a little bit about how we experience the need for hope. Because we seldom walk up to someone and say, can you give me the definition of? Right? Find me a person who says that, and I'll say, would you like to be Dominican? Right? But um, <laughs> most often, we experience a need, and then we seek to know more deeply what a thing is. So the first part of my talk will be the need that we experience. The second part will be really what is the thing that fulfills that need. The second part will be the definition. And the third part is then what is hope enfleshed, hope alive in the saints. Um, Embark with me a little bit on an imagination trip um, to the cynical, the upper room. We're going to look at kind of two moments. The first moment is the gathering of the apostles, the first gathering after they've scattered initially after Calvary. So this is before Christ has risen from the dead. They gather together, and you can imagine all the intensity in that room. There's some that just want to be silent. There's some that probably want to scream and hit the wall. There's some that just don't want to be with anyone. But they are all suffering immensely. We don't want to say necessarily that they lack faith, that they lack hope, or that they lack love, but they are definitely being tried. And I think it must have been a very powerful temptation for every apostle in the room to look at the situation from a totally natural perspective. Right? I, um, I love St. Andrew, actually, and I kind of think that he must have been one of the ones that looked at, how can we fix this? How can we fix this situation? Right? He was the one um, at the, the loaves and the fish when he said, there's a boy here with a fish. Right? He kind of looked around and stupid suggestion, but he was looking around and he's like, how can I fix this? We looked for the natural way. Oh, you know, um, our Lord has, has died. What, what can we do? What can we do? You know, he might have been the one to make the ridiculous suggestion about, um, you know, I don't, I don't know, let's go. And he even said, let's tell a story or something. Some ridiculous suggestions might have come out, but he was looking for what's the natural way to fix this, right? You might have had a pessimist that said, hopeless. We're going to walk out that door. They're going to kill us. Nothing to fix. No way to do it. There's nothing we can do. Even if they hadn't been looking on the natural level, they could have done the same thing on the supernatural level. 
could have said, supernaturally speaking, for our salvation, we can't do anything. We can't do anything to save ourselves. God has died. We might as well give up. Right? That would have been despair. They would still be looking on that natural level. They could have looked also on that supernatural level and said, well, he's died, but what can we do now? Perhaps we can go back to Judaism, right? Start practicing the fullness of what we learned before Christ came. Ignore what he said. Go back. The problem with all these responses, I think, is the very problem that we suffer with a lot today. It's that when we look at a situation where there's suffering and where there are questions, we try to respond by our own means. We look only on the natural level and say, what can we do with our own gifts? That's a good thing, but if it stops there, it will fail. How do we experience that same thing in our lives? When are we in those situations where when we look around, we're tempted to look only for the natural response to things? I just want to kind of pick up a few things that actually I've heard in the past week. Someone came up and said, my son has left the faith. He used to be an altar server. He hasn't gone to Mass. He hasn't set foot inside my house for five years. What do I do? I pray every night. What can I do? What can I do? That's a situation that looks like there's nothing left that we can do, right? Looking around Australia and saying, what do we do? People don't know the faith. Our teachers are not teaching the faith, right? I've heard that in this room tonight. You've all, I'm sure, experienced some situation where you look around and you say, how will the church survive? It's survived for 2,000 years, but... For by the looks of it, it's not going to survive the next decade, right? You can look around and say, what can we do? Hope is our response. Hope is our response to these situations. Not saying, what can we do? But saying, God, you will do something through this, right? Hope isn't an intellectual thing. Not saying, it's not, moving to the second part. Hope is not saying, I will think positively, and the situation will turn out well. If the apostles had just sat around and thunk positively, things would have turned out very differently. It is not just a thinking, because that would be something just of the intellect. That's actually a Protestant error. Luther said, hope is something just about belief, just an intellectual thing. Thinking, it's not just positive thinking. Because that wouldn't move us to do anything. It wouldn't help us to respond in any way to God's action. Right? It's not positive thinking. Neither is it just determination. Kind of that positive motivation. Not saying, ooh, if I just keep acting as though things are good, it'll be good. Right? We know that doesn't work. We know that especially when we're dealing with our own sins. Right? Which is another situation where we need help very powerfully. It's not positive thinking. It's not just that determination, that, that positive motivation. Rather than something intellectual that just ignores the situation, it is our response of our wills, allowing our wills to be moved by what God wills for the situation. It is the movement of the will toward God 
as the source and the means of our happiness, ultimately. What this means is we allow ourselves to be lifted up from looking at the natural effects of the situation and see God acting through this. It's tough to describe how our will can be moved because it is not just us turning our wills, but it is rather a reception of God's action in our will. What does this look like when we truly live, right? Um, our three, third part with our three patrons. Right? Um, two Polish saints. Um, the first one is um, St. Faustina. Um, are you all familiar with St. Faustina's life? Okay, I assume, but um, I did want to focus on kind of these small points of the three saints. Um, actually, um, when Faustina was very young, when she was seven, actually, she thought that she wanted to, she was called to be a nun. And so she went up to her mom and said, I'll be a nun. No, okay. And she said she committed herself to pursuing the vanities of life. So at that time, that just meant going out to a party. So she went out to a party, and she was, you know, dancing or whatever they did in those ages, right? And then, I kind of think this must, must have been strange when she actually experienced this, but she had a vision of the suffering Christ while at the party, which would be strange. Next time you see someone at a party looking kind of strange, think they might be seeing a vision of the suffering Lord, right? <laughs> But she had a vision of the suffering Lord, and she automatically said, Lord, what are you calling me to? What are you calling me to? And she was willing to turn her life back around after saying, with all her heart, I will pursue the vanities of life. I'm going to have fun. She didn't allow herself to be deterred by how recklessly she abandoned herself to those vanities. She had hope that God was the one that would carry her through to sanctity in spite of her sins, right? At the end of her life, too, she was struggling with a particular sin that she wanted the Lord to remove. And she said, Lord, help me, help me, help me. Why haven't you taken this away? But she didn't allow herself to be pulled down by that sin. Instead, she used that as a point of hope. She allowed that sin to draw her more closely, more nearly, to Christ. Um, the second Polish saint is, well, not quite saint, John Paul II, the beloved, um, um, or not, not beloved, not, not blessed yet, but um, servant of God. And um, once again, I want to take one small aspect of his life out that's um, not heralded very much. Um, but um, would you all say that he, John Paul II, was fairly attractive at the beginning of his years? <laughs> okay, he's an attractive man on very many levels, right? Um, not just for his writings, but for his, his physical appearance, too. At the end of his life, I think a lot of us found it hard to look at him, not saying, oh, 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 ugly man. Of course we wouldn't say that, but you'd say, oh, he has decayed. He is, he's beginning to grow so old, it's painful to look at him and see what he is no longer, Right? In those last years especially, I was so filled with hope at what he continued to do, even though he was clearly suffering. Clearly he had lost all of the physical appeal that he had. He did not count on his natural needs, on his bodily strength, to carry through his papacy. He went forward allowing God to carry through his papacy. He didn't look to the natural means. He looked to the supernatural means. Um, the third patron is Maria Goretti. 
a girl who, again, was um, was martyred at the age of 12. Um, and the sign of hope, um, I think, is very um, appropriate for we, us who especially find it difficult to forgive people. Um, the man that was responsible for her death, um, Alessandro Serenelli, um, was, up until the very moment that Maria died, unrepentant. Um, she'd made, he'd made advances toward her and stabbed her repeatedly. But even as he was stabbing her, she said, No, Alessandro, no, this is a sin. I want you to be with heaven in me. I'm sorry, I want you to be in heaven with me. No, it's a sin. Looking into his eyes, even as he was, even as he was killing her, she had that hope for him without any sign of repentance. That hope was not based in anything human, but looked solely to what God's action could do in his life. Those three saints, I think, are the, what I do like to call the enfleshment of hope, um, also the enfleshment of faith and of love, which is that visible thing that we can then point to to actually canonize people. I had the great honor to talk last um, about the, the theological virtue of charity or love. And that's a heavy task. Um, what I'm going to do is just start with a quote from Pope Benedict the 16th. One of his letters that he wrote, I think it's an apostolic letter on the sacrament of charity. And um, there's a section in the sacrament of charity, speaking of the Eucharist, as the food that sends us out to be witnesses. Okay, and he says this, and I want, and even though Pope Benedict is talking about the Eucharist, I was thinking of, I knew I was, would be following Sister Anna, and I knew she'd be talking about, like we all have been, um, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I want you to, to listen to this in terms of the Holy Spirit. The wonder we experience at the gift God has made to us in Christ gives new impulse to our lives and commits us to becoming witnesses of his love. We become witnesses when, through our actions, words, and way of being, another makes himself present. So I'm going to say it again. We become witnesses when, through our actions, our words, and our way of being, another makes himself present. And you know when anybody is truly in love or truly loved, they're more concerned that the loved one be loved, right? Um, If if there's a husband and a wife, when they really love one another, um, the husband always wants to kind of put the wife forward or the wife always kind of wants to put the husband forward. And for us to be truly witnesses, we want to put the other with a capital A, sign language, um, we want to put the other forward. And that is Jesus Christ. Okay. Um, anytime we're going to be a witness, the workings of the Holy Spirit, hopefully the Holy Spirit is working in us to show forth the other that is Jesus Christ. Because the work of the Spirit is to, to kind of match up people, people with Jesus. Okay. Um, it is the meeting with someone in the upper room. And Sister Mary Madeline mentioned that. You can believe in something, but it's, but really, it's the someone. It is the meeting with someone in the upper room 
which drives the apostles forward as witnesses. Witnesses of a love they have encountered personally. This is the whole purpose of World Youth Day, to provide young people with an opportunity of encounter with a love beyond all words, and to help young people encounter God and a church who love them. A God who alone can fill the hunger in their hearts, a God who alone can fill the hunger in our hearts. And this love is a love that doesn't pass away. So what is this love? And when we talk about the theological virtue of love, and like all of us, we, we need to define it, um, just kind of who we are. Um, if you remember, did you all learn, you learn the act of love? Oh my God, together. My God, I love you above all things. And I love my neighbor as myself for love of you. Okay, so, oh my God, I love you above all things. And I love, and I love my neighbor as myself for love of you. And students love that because you could do that. Oh my God, I love you above all things. <laughs> and I love my neighbor as myself for love of you. So they like it because it's kind of like a robot. Um, and then also we hear St. Thomas say that, that love is willing the good of another. Okay? Now those, I don't know about you, but doesn't kind of get, it's not really the things that poets write about, you know? Or not really the things that people offer their lives for. But people offer their lives, literally, the blood of their lives, for an encounter with the person of Christ. Um, you know that the, that the greatest act of witness is martyrdom. Okay, so the third, Sister Anna had mentioned, we, we each be doing saints. The three that I'm going to speak of is, when you hear about it, when you think about a saint who, well, all of them, the only way they can get to heaven is to love. But if you think of a saint that kind of encapsulates love, does anybody come to mind? Who? Therese. Yeah. So St. Therese. Because... When St. Therese, um, oh, wait, wait, yeah, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Okay, so St. Therese, then I have Pierre Giorgio Forsati, okay, and then the last one is St. Peter Chanel. And St. Peter Chanel, I haven't heard, I haven't known a lot about him, but what I'm going to do is make a connection between the influence of Peter Chanel to our present day pilgrims getting ready for World Youth Day, okay? Now, we said that love is that encounter and desiring to witness and putting forth the other. And for us, in this case, it's the Holy Spirit helping us to put forth Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, what's so awesome is Jesus always puts forth the Father. It's a beautiful selflessness. And I told the sisters earlier, I hate to talk about what love is not. Because like you spend all these different talks. Love is not just a feeling. Love is not, I love pizza. You know. <laughs> so we kind of know what all those things are. We know that love is not. Okay? So I'm just going to skip over that. And if you want more to know what love is not, just meet me in the corner later and I'll tell you what it is. <laughs> okay. So each of the patrons exemplify love. And this is the first thing I have always, um, St. Therese has always been a favorite of mine, but this is the first time that I think she's revealed this this little aspect to me. One of, um, when St. Charles was growing up, you know, she was always loved and doted on. But she, like every single one of us, 
in that process of growing up, was growing in, in knowledge of God, but also no, knowledge of self, self-knowledge. And I could almost imagine St. Therese saying, gosh, I'd love to be a missionary, because that's what she said. Then she would even say, oh, I'd love to be a teacher. Or she kind of just let her imagination go. All the things she'd love to, she would just want to do out of love for God. Then she even was so bold to say in her autobiography that she wishes she could be a priest. Now, follow this, because she didn't want women priests. She said, what an honor, though, it would be to offer the perfect sacrifice to God. So I'm imagining, Therese, like every single one of us, going through the stages in our lives and saying, what are my gifts, Lord? And so then she picks up scripture, sacred scripture, and she says, she starts to read through. Now, if I speak in human and angelic tongues, so like if I'm a really good speaker, or if I have that gift of tongues, I am only a gong, or clashing symbol. And if I have the gift of prophecy, now that would be pretty serious. If you had the gift of prophecy and could comprehend all of the mysteries, and you had all knowledge, not only did you know about Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but you know about, about every other state, and you know about everything, but you didn't have love, you are nothing. And if I give away everything I own, if if this person says, I think I'm called to be a sister and I'm going to give away everything I own, that's pretty impressive. And even I hand my body over to be killed, but do it without love, I gain nothing. It is impressive that somebody offers their life, but if they don't do it, if they do it without love or they don't do it with love, it's a waste. Waste. Okay. We know that John of the Cross says that in the end, we will be judged on one thing, and that is love. So what St. Therese revealed to me, I think, is, is for all of us to, to genuinely look at what is, it, what is it that our gifts are, but then to use those gifts inspired by love. And then what's really neat is St. Therese came to the end. She didn't realize, she, wasn't, she wasn't, didn't realize, oh, I'm a good speaker, or oh, I'm a good prophet, or oh, I'm a good whatever. She said, Wait a minute. My vocation is to be what? Love in the heart of the church. So not all these other things, X, Y's, and Z's, Z's, but to be love in the heart of the church. And you know, because all of us um, uh, have grown up in families or close to families, um, love is tested and tried and perfected with one another because somewhere else Jesus said, scripture somewhere says that um, that testimony of your, the amount you can measure your amount of love for God like sometimes we'd like to know how much do I love you God? well I love him as much as I love the person I like the least so if you kind of say well who do I like the least that's how much I love God Second person is Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati, and he is the example I'm just going to say briefly of of charity in action. Okay, he was only 24. Also, when he died, he started and he started his life of virtue from a young age. What's really beautiful about Pierre Giorgio Frassati is he was kind of a Renaissance man. If you've ever seen his pictures, totally handsome, great athlete. Um, 
intelligent, but did, but wasn't the best student. Um, he loved to you know hike and do all those kind of things. He was popular. He was involved in a ton of different activities and very committed to them. Um, he was involved in um, Saint Vincent de Paul Society and was also a third order Dominican. But what's really beautiful is he, at one point, I just learned this the other day too, he supported single-handedly something like a hundred single mothers. So he would take care of these single mothers um, and he was only 24 years old. But Pierre Giorgio Frassati is a beautiful example of love in action but also hidden. That whenever Pierre Giorgio died, there was a huge lineup of people that came to the funeral and the wealthy people thought, oh, it's just going to be all wealthy people at the funeral. And the poor people thought, it's just going to be all poor people at the funeral. And they were surprised to see one another there because he was mixing in all of those circles and being charitable in all of those circles, but in hidden ways, in quiet ways, and he didn't boast all about it. Am I making sense? Okay. The first person is Peter Chanel, and I'm happy to, to share this story. The reason why the um, World Youth Day Office chose St. Peter Chanel as a patron of World Youth Day is because he's the first martyr of Oceania. And the place that is significant to this story is that he was martyred in, in the island of Wallace and Fortuna. Okay? One of those little islands up there, and that you all know much better than I do from the United States. But that's going to be an important fact. Okay? One of the work that I'm doing at World Youth Day is um, youth festival. Okay? So I talk to youth festival applicants and all that kind of stuff. But another aspect of it that has been a great grace is talking to, to different indigenous communities. The other day I was blessed to meet with a, a young lady from Tokolau. Okay? Those are the, uh, the three islands that are just north of Samoa. Okay? Her name is Hina. It took her 24 hours by boat to get to a place where she could fly to Auckland to get to a place where she could fly then to Sydney. And when I was sitting with her, she's probably in her 30s, she, God bless you, I asked her, what is the faith like in Taukalau, and could you please spell that for me? <laughs> because I have no idea what you're talking about, but she was beautiful. She said that there, of the three islands, the first island is 80% Catholic, 20% Presbyterian. The middle island is 100% Catholic, and the southern island is 100% Presbyterian. And I said, how in the world did the faith get there? And she said that generations ago, probably about four or five generations ago, this is a great, this is a great story, and it's going to be in a youth festival, so you can tell it's kind of like a movie. But these pirates came, okay, and they raided this, this middle island that was not yet Catholic, it wasn't any kind of faith, probably just some native faith, raided the island and kidnapped people. And of the people that they kidnapped, they kidnapped these two men and traveled with all these people and dropped them off at the island of Wallace and Fortuna. Now, why is that important? Because who was martyred there? Jesus And the blood of the martyrs is seen in the church. So that all of a sudden, the church is growing in Wallace and Fortuna. These two guys, who are no faith at all, come, land on this island, and the faith is already strong there and growing. These two guys end up being on, this, on the island of Wallace in Virginia for about five years. 
In the process of those five years, they're baptized and ordained to be priests. Then, it says for them, they go back to the island of Tokelau. Now that's significant because you, we know historically that a lot of people, a lot of times it's been um, like European nations that bring the faith, right? Tokelau is one of the only areas that native people bring the faith back, okay? When these guys come, the king and the kingdom is not really ready for them, and it becomes this whole kind of a, a really a war scene. Um, they're trying to spread the faith. The king is not accepting. But the king's son was very interested in the faith, and he wanted to be baptized. But his father wouldn't allow it. So in the midst of this war, now we have another group of people, there's going to be several groups, second group of people coming into the Portuguese. And I somehow, you know, that the weaponry of the all those nations, especially European nations, is well advanced. Tukalau people had not never seen a gun. Somebody took a gun, they're not real happy with the king, and they killed this Portuguese man, killed the king. Now that's really bad, and we wouldn't have directly wanted that to happen. But what it did is it kind of it removed his influence and it allowed the Catholic faith to spread. When when the Catholic faith spread, the people of Tukalau really embraced it, and they had a great and a deep devotion to the Blessed Mother. And they raised up the flag with a big M for the Blessed Mother. Next group that comes about are the British. And when the British come, what flag are they going to raise? Yeah, British flag. So the Queen, just some, not elected, but brought to the throne or whatever, Queen Victoria, and the British they take their flag down, we're putting up ours. And Tukalau's were crazy. And they said, no way. This is our country, and Mary is our queen. So it ended up that that was another little scuffle. They finally compromised and, and put the flag of the Blessed Mother up top and Queen Victoria at the bottom. Now, is, there are two more interesting catches. This woman that I sat with, Hina, the end result, like I just said, is that particular island is 100% Catholic. This woman, Hina, that in preparations for World Youth Day, the Holy Spirit has been doing amazing acts of unity and healing. And then she shared, she said, Sister, my great-grandfather, on my father's side, was the king. My great-grandfather, on my mother's side, was the Portuguese man. <laughs> so what was beautiful is I said to her, Kina, within your person, is reconciliation. And she was sharing, you know, I mean, it was really a tearful, beautiful meeting because um, she was saying that not only has that been reconciled, uh, an area of reconciliation, but between the Presbyterians and the Catholics, there has been, in preparation for World Youth Day, a great reconciliation and healing. And now that from that island, there are going to be about 30 pilgrims coming, and I think that there's probably of that number, five will be Presbyterian and the rest will be Catholic. Um, so that is, just in conclusion, um, the work of the spirit of love, um, if we're open to receive, and we don't have to be open, but if we're open, we can do great things. So, thank you for your time. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by the Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.
在这一遇